This is a second message from the book of Habakkuk. We've just uh, done, I've just uh, chose to do Habakkuk last Sunday and f- finished off this Sunday. Um, we could have spent a bit more time in this book, but that's what we're doing. And this uh, message this morning I've entitled From Bewilderment to Joy. Uh, can a person of faith go through a time of questioning God? Not all struggling with God is sinful. Last week we saw that God does not condemn or even rebuke Habakkuk for questioning him. When life is rough, when we feel overwhelmed and God feels far away, it is not unnatural to cry out, Why Lord? Last week we heard a bewildered Habakkuk wrestling in prayer. We listened to how God answered his doubts in chapters 1 and 2. And uh, we saw the remarkable dialogue between this bewildered prophet and the God whose ways seemed so perplexing. So if God can meet the need of this baffled saint, then he can speak to us in our times of struggle and turmoil. His His prayers were actually complaints, that's what they're called. He was not happy with God at all. Often the words of a despairing believer are coming from their pain. And uh, as Piper has reminded us, their, their words are mere wind. And like the wind, they will so, soon blow away. And that's certainly the case for Habakkuk. One moment he's accusing God of acting in a way that was contrary to his character. The next he is confidently rejoicing in the God of his salvation. So sometimes we're too quick. Sometimes I've been too quick to try and defend God and his word by reproving the words of a despairing believer. We need to discern whether a person's complaints are coming from a heart that is in pain or whether they are coming from a person who has hardened their heart against the truth. There's a difference. The latter may need reproof. The former may simply need our company. So initially, the prophet was not happy with what he perceived to be God's failure to answer his cry for help. Uh, He's profoundly burdened because he sees evil running unchecked in the nation of Judah. He he cannot understand why judgment has not fallen on the wicked. God seems like a, a passive dad watching his kids run amok, doing absolutely nothing. Well, in fact, that wasn't true. The prophet was wrong. God was not idly looking at at what was going on in Judah, Judah, the terrible oppression and corruption and evil and violence. God was actually raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonian Empire, to deal with the sins of Judah. But instead of uh, that news bringing joy to the prophet, that the news of an impending Babylonian invasion astonished him. It'd be like if we were told that God was raising up China to come against Australia to bring judgments and purification to the church in Australia. That would be a shock, wouldn't it? That would be like unbelievable. How could God do that? Would God do that? Does God sometimes in his sovereign 
redemptive purpose raise up judgments against even the church. The judgment of God begins in the household of God. Still, that's true in the New Testament. But those judgments are, might be severe mercies, but they are to purify his people. Could God bring severe judgments upon his people? Yes, he can. Yes, he does. Uh, the church is not all that it's meant to be. The church sometimes drifts with the culture, is shaped by an unbelieving world. And God in his love deals with us. Well, when Habakkuk hears that judgment that's coming, you know, the Babylonians were coming to pillage and slaughter God's own people. Well, that plan of action seemed totally inconsistent with what he believed about God's character. It didn't make sense. We saw that last week. He wanted God to explain himself. And uh, now he's not only upset that God's not dealing with Judah, he's upset that God would allow Babylon to bring such suffering upon Judah and the other nations and get off scot-free. Well, God has no intention, and we saw that last week. He declares five woes, judgments against Babylon, and he makes it clear that their so-called glory will turn to shame. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 2, not only will God deal with Judah through Babylon, but God will deal with Babylon. And... uh, The prophet doesn't understand all of God's ways, but he knows that God will have his glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The proud, the powerful of this earth will not have the final word. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. It's a good thing when you or I are brought to a place of silence before God where we confess the greatness of his mercy and majesty in all that he does, even when it brings pain. That's not an easy place to come to, but it's a good place to quietly trust him, to be silent before God, where we know and are glad that God is God, that he is faithful and that we can trust him. Now, it's not merely the revelation uh, to, to Habakkuk that God will judge all sin. It's not just that uh, assurance that God's going to deal with evil that, that relieves Habakkuk's burden. It's the something more that he sees. And there'd have to be, wouldn't there? Um, To know that there's a God who is just and true and will not allow sin to escape without meeting its judgment is a great thing. People complain when people get away with murder. Well, they won't, finally. There'll be nothing hidden that won't be exposed before the holy judgment of God. But there is something greater. What is greater is knowing that all the judgments of God are with a view to fulfilling his astonishing plan to reveal his mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If all a parent 
did was to incessantly, constantly judge the sins of their child, what good would that do? There are times when we must judge and correct the wrongs of our children. Otherwise, we're not loving them. But to constantly nag and punish our kids for their wrong would only discourage and crush them. P.T. Forsyth, he said, never judge, never judge, but in the spirit that redeems. I love that. Never judge, but in the spirit that redeems. Obviously, God's judgments are somewhat more searching and severe than a parent's judgment is ever called to be. But his mercy is immeasurably greater than we could possibly imagine. And Habakkuk knows that judgment is not the final word that defines God. It is his mercy that renews our hope. And the prophet knows that God abounds in mercy, that God is rich in mercy. How does he know that? Well, he remembers the great mercy that God showed to Israel when they were delivered from the Egyptians. He knows that, the, that God is the God who saves. Where we are not uh, Jews as such, we're not to just live with that, go back to the Exodus, we do with great uh, encouragement, but our primary point of reference to knowing that God is the God who saves is where we go back to Christ. We go back and we remember how he touched people's lives, how he set people free, how he healed people, how he came against evil powers to liberate people from oppression. And uh, we come, we remember how he went to the cross and uh, how the world came to judgment in that cross, that our sins were borne by him and how death was conquered, defeated, how the evil one uh, was vanquished in that cross and by his great resurrection. We remember that God turned up and met our need and defeated all that, that, that we are that stands against God so that we could be raised to be for God in Christ forever, to be with God in his purposes. That's what we remember we need to remember. We remember it around the Lord's table. We remember it in our singing. We, why do we sing always about these things? So that we remember that this is the God who is rich in mercy, who's raised us from death to life. And if he, if he accomplished that great victory then, then we can trust him during the bleak, times where we can't see his hand at work in the present he is the lord over all powers over all nations he's the lord of history and we can trust him and we remember his mercy so what turns the prophet from despair to hope and joy is remembering what god has done in the past how God has worked in both judgment and mercy. There's no mercy without judgment. Not for Israel. Not for us. But the judgment that brings us the greatest assurance of his mercy is the cross. 
Now is the time for judgment, Jesus said, as he faced that cross. Now will the world be judged and the evil one be cast down. But that's where you and I were conquered, brought through judgment into life through his mercy. And so his prayer is, O Lord, I've heard of your fame. That's where God made a name for himself in delivering them from Egypt. I've heard of your fame and your work. God works. God has done great works. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, there's many Christians who no longer believe in a God of wrath. Well, you, you, you don't know God's mercy if you don't believe in his wrath against sin. Now, there are people who have just a God of wrath and they know nothing of God's mercy. Well, they would be a very sad people, wouldn't they? In, rem, in, in wrath, remember mercy. So he's, he is now, he's moved from complaint, he's so burdened for his people, but he's moved from complaint to be able to faithfully pray for the revival of the nation. He's in a proper place now to intercede for, for his people. He's not now struggling against God's will, but agreeing with God regarding the need for such a judgment to purify his people. He prays with confidence in wrath, remember mercy. What I mean by that, he's not, he's not trying to bend God's arm. He knows he can pray for mercy because he knows that God has shown mercy all down through Israel's history. When he could have and would have been rightly justified in blotting them out of history out of existence. He knows that he can pray in wrath, remember mercy, because he knows God has shown mercy in the past. And you can see that in the Psalms again and again. God remembers to be merciful because he's a God who is rich in mercy. The prophet Habakkuk, if you can hear this, he is not pleading against a God of wrath to please show a little mercy. That's not what Habakkuk is praying. He's saying, I've seen what you've done before. I've heard of your work to redeem. I am, I am in awe of your work, O oh Lord. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, do it. Make it known. Repeat what you've done before. Show us again the kind of God you are. Do it again in wrath. Remember mercy. Can you see that? If you know that that's how he's praying, we could pray like that because you, you know the character of God. He says, revive your work, but do it your way, not my way. It's your work. You know, before he was saying, why aren't you doing it my way? Now he's saying, no, God, I know. I trust you do what you've done before. God loves to hear and answer prayers like that. We can appeal to God on the basis of how he has made himself known in the past. 
you know, what, what is it that keeps us from despair for the church? If, if we know anything about the state of the church in the West, we should be burdened. There's no question. Just in Adelaide, even in our own community. What keeps us from giving way to despair? Because we know how God has delivered his people in the past. We know that God, sometimes with severe means, can revive his people to the truth of who he is. We, the way we renew our hope is to remember Psalm 77, uh, he says, Will the Lord reject forever? He's given up hope. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? But then verse 10, he says this, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And on that basis... I will appeal that God might act. Lamentations 3, to this this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It's when we stop remembering the great deeds of God, that's when we fall into despair. Much of the rest of the chapter, and I won't go into the detail, but they give a powerful, uh, they give powerful images depicting God's great work in the in the work of the Exodus. And uh, as he remembers God's power and His mercy, as he rehearses in his prayer the great deeds of God, and verse five, where it talks about the plagues of Egypt. And uh, verse 8, God riding his chariot of salvation as he opened up the Red Sea and led his people across the River Jordan. You see, he's, he's declaring in this beautiful poem the great power of God over every nation and power that came against Israel in order to redeem them, to set them free. So as he considers how God has worked in the past, he knows that this great power of Babylon that terrifies the nations is nothing compared to the power of God. So whatever we fear in this world, we just need to be reminded that, that the powers of this world are nothing compared to the power of God. We're not to live in dread of what the superpowers might do. They are no match for God. And verses 11 to 15, it pictures God as a mighty warrior going out to defeat the enemy. Going out, going out for the salvation of his people and his anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. The horses, the chariots of Egypt were nothing compared to the horses of God. What do we have in, in the New Testament 
God uh, disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. We look back to the great conquering of all evil in that cross. And, uh, and so Habakkuk can now face the reality of what is coming in the light of what he remembers. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't feel some fear. He actually says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver. He's thinking about what's to come. He knows that worse, it's, it's going to get nasty when Babylon comes. Rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He feels wobbly as he considers the terrible events that are going to come upon the people of Israel. He doesn't deny his fear. He used to sing a song about, um, with Christ in my vessel I smile at the storm. Um, And that's a good song. But sometimes we can be smiling at the storm on the outside but still terrified on the inside and not being real. Habakkuk was real. He says, I'll wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So I'll wait for God to deal with Babylon, even though he knows that Babylon is going to bring terrible sorrow upon Israel. He will trust God to deal with Babylon. And then he just describes, and we're familiar with this song. We used to sing it in youth group, and I think as we sang this song in youth group, Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, I don't think we knew what we were talking about, singing about. We had no idea. Though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That describes a time of utter desolation. The Babylonians would come, and they'd just burn the fruit trees, it'd be just total devastation. He's not talking about getting a flat tyre. He's not talking about the internet going down. He's not talking about the roast getting burnt because the preaching was too long. He's talking about total devastation. It'd be a bit like a fruit grower in the Adelaide Hills after the fires going through I remember a dear Sudanese pastor sharing about the devastation to their land after enduring war for so many years he said the land was completely bare nothing was growing anywhere but then with a wide smile he said we had a saying during those times God is good And he is good all the time. God is good. How can you say that? How can Habakkuk say this? Yet, yet, in spite of all that desolation and despair, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. I might feel utterly weak, 
But God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, deers, I was watching a documentary just a few days ago, and young deers, you think they're so young and they're wobbly and they're right on the edge of the rocks, but they're jumping around. Amazing. My father-in-law and my mother-in-law were up the Flinders Ranges and uh, there were goats on the side of the mountain and they were looking at them, jumping from rock to rock and... uh, marvelled at it and my father-in-law said do you you know how they do that and uh, my mother-in-law said no and he said well they actually have two legs shorter on one side than the other and uh, Mary my dear mother-in-law went silent for five minutes and then after a while she said what happens when they turn around Amazing to watch deer, the way they can go on the high places. And uh, what's Habakkuk saying? He's saying, I've I'm felt wobbly and I still feel a bit wobbly, but I know God will give me the strength that I will be able to keep my balance through the... I won't fall off the edge. And that uh, it'll be because I am trusting that God hasn't finished, that he will revive, he will restore, there will be salvation, the church will be renewed, there'll be new life, there'll be abundance again, even though they come through a terrible time of famine. He will trust that God, because he's a God of rich mercy, will restore. And that's our hope. That's our strength. Uh, That's why we can take joy in the God of our salvation and not give way to despair. Um, I was reading that, um, that quite a few pastors are leaving the ministry because in America, because of the struggle they feel with fellow believers who are raging because they've either been taken captive by the ideology to the left and are raging why the church isn't doing this and isn't doing that, or they've been taken captive by the ideology to the right and are angry why the church is doing this and why the church is, uh, you know, obeying the government. Can you see... And Tim Keller's comment when he was questioned about it said he's never seen anything like it. And this is the evangelical church. Rather than being kept steady by the word of God, by the promises of God, by who God is, we get taken captive by the stories of this world that are not based in reality, that are not based in truth. And we think what we're hearing there is more true than the word of God. And the latest plot and conspiracy becomes our gospel and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be brought out of confusion 
and brought back to the steady place of trusting our God who in wrath remembers great mercy. And we know that because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear Father, Lord, we are in terms of turmoil. The church is in times of turmoil, but we were in turmoil before this pandemic. And now our minds and hearts are strangely focused. And maybe some of us are listening more intently to your word, to your voice. Father, help us when we're not. Forgive us, Father, when we are just captured by all the news of this world that is no true good news and that we take our eyes off Christ. Bring us, Father, to a place where we just are steady, trusting you and interceding for your people and for the gospel's prospering in this world amongst the nations. Father, we thank you that nothing is out of your hands and that your sovereign purposes are good and rich in mercy. And we pray, Father, that we would stay in step with your spirit and that like Habakkuk, uh, we might yet rejoice in the Lord. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, that we might find, Father, your strength for the trials that, that are befall any of us, Father. That we might find a strength in our weakness that brings us through and gives us, renews our hope for the future, both in the days to come and in the great hope that is before us eternally. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.